Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here, just giving you a heads up that our next episode will indeed be a recording of our special panel at Chicago TARDIS, and then we will be following that with a special Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast redux when we do An Unearthly Child, which has never been read by Allison or by Dalton, so we are going to read that together and discuss it for the first time for them and not the first time for me. And then we will get back to Peter Davison and his final season when we discuss Warriors of the Deep with Jim Sangster. I think that's everything. This is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, darlings. I'm Katie Manning, and I play Joe Grant and Joe Grant Jones in Doctor Who. <laughs> and Iris Wild Time. Hello, lovies. <laughs> and you're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, darlings. Bye-bye. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the companionable task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I literally could not think of an adjective for this one at all. And then a fucking ambulance goes by. <laughs> Appropriate. Appropriately. I'm going to leave that in because to hell with it. This to is show sort of people my... what kind of a person you are, that you would prefer some person to just suffer and die, rather than cause you a slight audio inconvenience. I know. How dare they? Do they know how difficult it is to get an ambulance siren out of a recording once it's in there? How dare they? Anyway, my name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally companionable three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes and has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Back from COVID land. Yeah, we mm. all three of us seem to be suffering with one thing or another because I am congested right now. So if it sounds like I've got a lisp, that's part of it. And you've got COVID. And, and if it sounds like I have a lisp, it's because I have my whole life. Well, <laughs> it sounds no. like I have a lisp. You're correct. You don't sound like you have a lisp, though. You've never sounded like you have a lisp. No, you've just grown accustomed to it. It's part of my charm. I, well, yes, we'll call it that. Yes. yes. If you like what you're hearing, though I doubt you could, <laughs> please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash DWTargetBC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive among other possible goodies. And I have no idea what possible goodies those could be because I'm redoing the gift structure on Patreon. So stay tuned. Just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them in a top-secret weapons testing facility alongside all of your virus samples. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. 
And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton-Welling, and Louise Dennis. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you also for sticking with us during that long hiatus. It was very much appreciated and very helpful. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We briefly pause our discussion of Peter Davison's run as the Fifth Doctor as we discuss another entry in the Companions of Doctor Who series with Ian Martyr's original and sadly final novel, Harry Sullivan's War. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Harry Sullivan... Yeah. <laughs> How is it that I can't say Harry Sullivan? <laughs> you can't say Harry Sullivan because you're wanting to say Larry Varnish. Oh, God. <laughs> Larry Varnish? Yes. Oh, God. Mr. Larry L. Varnish. Yeah, now we have to keep all that in. Harry Sullivan's War, an original novel written by Ian Martyr as part of the Companions of Doctor Who series, published by Target Books in October 1986. As of this recording in November 2023, this title is currently out of print, 148 pages. This is the very last book of Ian Martyr's that we will be reading, and sadly it's also the very last book he wrote. So there's an unfortunate synchronicity that's happening there. This book was published, according to Wikipedia, in October of 1986, though our friend Jim Sangster tells me that the publication date is September of that same year. And I'm more likely to trust Jim Sangster's dates than I am Wikipedia's. Either way, Martyr died that same year on October 28th, which is, I think, when we were originally going to record this, or not too far from it, after having a diabetic episode after drinking too much in celebration of his 42nd birthday. The poor man died on his 42nd birthday. Wow. He had planned on killing off Harry as well in this book, but was persuaded otherwise. And he claimed in interviews he was always planning on writing a sequel. His sudden death also necessitated that editor Nigel Robinson finish his novelization of The Rescue, which came out the next year. And we've long since read that because it was a Hartnell book. And I think we kind of like that book, in fact. It's also the next to last of the Companions of Doctor Who range published by Target, though calling it a range may be a little bit too dramatic, <laughs> as there are only three of the damn things. And we've read the last book in that range already, which was Terrence Dudley's Canine and Company, published in 1987, and the less we say about that, the better. We still have the first of these books ahead of us, though it's definitely too much to say we have it to look forward to, and that's Turlow and the Earthlink Dilemma, which despite the title has nothing to do with American ISPs from the 1990s. <laughs> we'll cover that one after we do Turlow's final story, which will be coming up. As for the placement of this one in story order, this book is published 10 years after Harry's last appearance on screen, but the vagaries of unit dating would place it anywhere between 1986 and 1996. We're doing it here because the fact that Harry is doing something very hush-hush is mentioned just as equally vaguely in Modern Undead. Besides, we needed to do something for Halloween, which is now past us, and since we have nothing, we're doing this. You can really tell that the hiatus did us so much good, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So let's have... Ow! I, I tried to lift my arms over my head, and I couldn't. It hurt. <laughs> well, that's very on theme for what we've read. Yes! Mm -hmm. <laughs> Terribly is. sore. Um, Stayed up all night, uh, staying warm with brandy. Don't know why I have such a terrible headache today. Uh -huh. Trying to lift ourselves to higher heights and kind of falling <laughs> down in pain. Harry's life choices. Yeah. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to do the honors on this one? Sure. It is ten years since Harry Sullivan left UNIT and gave up his travels in the TARDIS with the Doctor and Sarah Jane. Since then, he has been engaged in top-secret work developing antidotes to nerve toxins. But when he is transferred to Yara in the Hebrides to work on weapons research, he has severe misgivings. 
For one thing, it goes against much of what he believes in. For another, someone is out to kill Harry Sullivan. Who wants Harry safely out of the way? What significance does a painting by Van Gogh have in the affair? And can Harry's old friend, the Brigadier, really be involved in a scheme which threatens the security of the Western world? Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and immediately I'm going to go into pedantic mode. Van Gogh. <laughs> but yeah, yeah we'll, we'll say Van Gogh because everybody does. In fact, Harry would probably have said Van Gogh. <laughs> but yeah, that's only I thought only he was doing his bad American accent. Oh yeah, yeah because his Bronx by way of Alabama accent. <laughs> yes. I did enjoy trying to imagine that mix. Oh Lord, I would have given anything to see Ian Martyr trying to play that too, because you could tell he wanted to. They say Van Gogh in the Bronx and in Alabama, though there would be no conflict in the vowels there. <laughs> nope, probably not. So, first impressions, Dalton, what was your first impression upon getting the PDF, the really terrible PDF of this book? Well, without reading anything, even the back cover, the front cover told me this is going to be a James Bond ripoff, <laughs> and boy, did it under-deliver on that, but oh, yeah. it tried. Bless its heart, it tried. Yeah, and then once I finally read the back cover, I was like, yep, this is going to involve some high society art world stupidity and uh, probably some tuxedos and car chases. And it just, I don't know. I like Bond. I like those films. And this felt like it was trying so hard to be that, but just wasn't delivering on it for me. And we got two of those things. We got the car chases, and we got the tuxedos eventually. We didn't get the high society thing, because the Van Gogh thing goes <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it Van went. went. No. Yeah, it Van went. <laughs> it didn't Van went. I don't know. Well, at the very last scene, I thought there were actual members of the Well, no, were there any art lovers there? I don't know. I honestly I don't know. I was confused about that, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure myself either. Allison, what was your first impression upon getting this? Harry's face is lopsided in such a way. I, for whatever reason, Bell's palsy has come up a lot <laughs> on our podcast over the years. And he's having kind of a Magnum P.I. moment. A Magnum P.I. moment? Where I went with it. In what way? Uh, opening sequence of Magnum P.I. always had the shot of a helicopter menacing a car on it. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. So it did. I don't think I've ever actually seen an episode of Magnum P.I., but I've seen the opening sequence many times before I was told that I was too young for that show. <laughs> and I couldn't actually watch it. <laughs> what I have seen from this era, and quite recently, is after years of hearing people refer to Avery Brooke as Hawk, I'm like, okay, what show was that? Mm -hmm. On what show was Avery Brooke's Hawk? So I have seen uh, a lot of the first season of Spencer wait, for Hire now. Wait, Spencer for Hire? Yeah, I was about to say, yes. it wasn't Magnum P.I., it was Spencer for no, Hire. No, no, but they're, those are both shows that were out by this time. I don't know if Ian, Ian Martyr had seen them. And uh, I have very similar opinions of them. So Spencer for Hire is actually a lot of fun. It's gorgeously shot for a TV show. Terrific cinematography, terrific lighting, phenomenally stupid plots. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but very entertaining in its way, which is how I felt about this book. So I, I was not as disappointed as as you were, Dalton. And just as Ian Martyr was always easy on the eyes, Robert Urich is very easy on the eyes. <laughs> but a uh, very similar boomer's fantasy, boomer's face middle age. So my parents uh, were born in 45 and 46, technically a little young to be boomers, but all the big boomer birthdays were always, um, you know, the cover of Newsweek or whatnot. Oh, yeah. So I knew when my parents turned 40 because there was a news magazine cover that said the boomers turned 40. Yep. I don't remember why this has come up in a recent podcast. I think I was talking about the Lordy, Lordy, I'm 40 party aisle merchandise with the black streamers and all of that. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> what this has in common with Spencer for Hire is it's very much a 40-year-old man's story about being an adult action hero in ways that are both very well observed, except when they're pathetic. <laughs> So I actually loved how throughout the book, every time he tries something really physical, good Lord, does he suffer later for it. <laughs> yes. like, Man, I can't run as fast as I used to. Wow, I'm really sore. Wow, I can't drink like that and stay up all night. 
in a way that I thought was very funny and very well observed. And then at the end, it's just kind of uh, like a sort of a pathetic fantasy in the very last scene and the Eiffel Tower. So I thought that there are a lot of the same components. It's a mid-80s, the boomers turned 40 story where we have someone who's trying to come to terms with that in a way that is a very mixed in terms of its self-awareness and delusion. <laughs> I would say a lot more self-awareness than delusion in this. And he does draw the conclusion Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. <laughs> yes. <towards the> end. <laughs> I love how that comes up at least twice. <laughs> Four times. Word search. Oh, yeah. Okay, there we go. There we go. He's told he, by others he's an imbecile before. He's like, no, no, Harry Sullivan's not an imbecile until the end. And then he realizes. Sullivan's an imbecile. <laughs> Sullivan's an imbecile. <laughs> yeah, I found that last scene in the Eiffel Tower so disappointing because I thought he actually had many well-observed details um, in here. Okay. Like, for example, he realizes ahead of time he's not thought about where in the world he's going to hide his rental car while he's spending the night in the cave drinking. <laughs> right. And, and there are a lot of actually very good moments like that that I thought dialed down the glamour of his adventures in a way that was very fun. Oh, yeah. So we should probably keep going along those lines and talk about what this book does right. Because I, I, I just have this feeling we're not going to have a lot to say compared to what it does wrong, because we've already plumbed those depths a little bit. What does this book do right? <laughs> Long silence. I thought it was funny. Okay, tell us about that. <laughs> Dalton's cackling now. <laughs> yes. I thought it was funny, but I get the feeling that I think it's funny because I thought it was stupid, not because I genuinely thought it was funny. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about the different forms of funny then. Dalton, you said that you thought it was funny because you thought it was stupid. But, uh, well, um, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so the name of the, the society that has uh, <laughs> taken uh, <laughs> Harry Sullivan's, they, they go by earaches. <laughs> yes. I laughed out loud on the train. People, people it's were looking. so dumb. It's so stupid. I it was very funny. <laughs> and it is. It's both of those things. <laughs> yeah. You have to have something like, uh, what is the name of the organization in James Bond? It's Smirsh. Which doesn't sound much better. And then you have Man from Uncle, and they have Thrush, which sounds like they've all come down with HIV, unfortunately. Well, the thing is, I did not catch it before. They have... Uh, the ache acronym, the ear acronym, the recurring self-portrait uh, where Van Gogh's missing his ear. And I did not ever put all yeah. of that together into earache. <laughs> yeah. I should have, but like Harry, I guess I was a bit of an imbecile. Well, I don't think it's even that. I think Ian Martyr, and I will say this brings us right back around to what he's doing right with this. He's having a lot of fun with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's doing things like making really, really silly jokes about... Oh, they call themselves Unit. <laughs> because we are talking about the writer who, remember, Nigel Robinson had to take all of the references to fellatio <laughs> out of the rescue. <laughs> so but, this is the man uh, we're talking about. Same year. But no um, editor could remove all of his throbbing masculine anxieties from this book. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> But at least he does attribute them to Harry. And, you know, it, it could indeed be, you know, author on board. But it also is the sort of things that Harry, as we know Harry, would be going through at this point, too. So something that would be classic and sad would be if an opening scene was Harry fighting and dominating the Jamaican bodybuilder in the gym. Mm -hmm. But instead, he's almost castrated by him. <laughs> right. <laughs> Almost every scene where thereafter wherein they meet. Sorry, I was just so delighted by this. this is the first screenshot I have. Forty one, he croaked, gratefully swallowing the stale air, listening to the echo of the following weeks. <laughs> he lay on the bench for several minutes, gingerly massaging his bruised and aching ribs. <laughs> <laughs> I like this is the most unsportsmanlike murder attempt I've ever heard of. Oh yeah. Betrayed by your spotter. <laughs> and it wasn't even a spotter on top of it all. Yeah. <laughs> like apparently it's the opposite of a spotter. Someone who gives you an unsafe amount of weight. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do have to say, though, that that does sound like the sort of midlife crisis that Harry Sullivan himself would have. So I think it's very, oh, I hate to say on brand as the youngsters do, but yeah, that's that's essentially one thing that I think is he's getting right. I mean, who else would write Harry Sullivan so well, except perhaps Tom Baker? The only other time I've seen Harry Sullivan written quite this well outside of an Ian Martyr book, because he did two of them, is in Scratchman. Mm. That version of Harry is particularly well done. So what else, though? What else do we think is done well in this book, apart from the humor, knowing or otherwise? I think that the story is so meandering and all over the place that (laughs) I never really knew who the bad guy was. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, Alexander Shire, like, of course, is the bad guy. But, you know, he's with, who are the other two? Is it, uh, oh, God. There's Rudolph as the, the bodyguard, the, the odd job yes. stand in. Mm-hmm. And was it Zbig, new? Uh, yeah, I've never known Brodsky. how to pronounce Brodsky. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, is Shire really, like, the big bad guy or is he, like, working for them? But also, like, all the stuff with gold being there too and the whole red herring with the brigadier Mm -hmm. which i always thought like was the brigadier under some kind of hypnosis or something like that that never gets explained really no so i i enjoyed that that kind of part of it (laughs) even though it was kind of annoying how meandering it was it was a it was effective in keeping me on my toes being like well who is who is this bad guy what is really going on here what's the kind of end game going to end up being like dalton i'm i'm about to insult you you are doing what i normally do which is giving backhanded compliments it seems like the positives you've given it are definitely all tied to the negative side of it, but it's kind of hilarious to <laughs> see that this book has had this effect on you because you know. you're, you're usually so generous <laughs> and you're not being generous with this one. <laughs> no, of course not. He croaked. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, guess, I guess that's just how I really feel. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. I'm, I'm just I'm just really amused by that. <laughs> because as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> he's going to tie this to a negative again, which means we need to talk about the negatives, apparently, because there are so many of them. And it surprises me because this is the first I didn't say anything about my first impressions of this book because I haven't had any. I'm reading it for the first time with y'all. Mm. This is one of those books that I never had a copy of. Still don't, in fact. And never really had all that much interest in getting a copy of it when I heard what it was about. It's like, eh, James Bond. Eh. <laughs> Especially if he's doing it in the Fleming style, because I've tried reading Ian Fleming, and that's not any fun. Whereas this at least is, but this is my first time reading the book. And after everything I've heard about it, Especially from people like Jim Sangster, who actually says really glowing things about this book on his blog. It's like, really? I don't know. What did we not like? (laughs) Apparently I liked a lot more than the two of you did. Okay, so now that we're in the negatives, Allison's going to tell us what she liked about it. So Allison... I've been talking about what I like about it. I... Okay. Found the self-aware humor very entertaining. Just a quivering bag of neuroses, but he does manage to pull some things off and get them done. Yes. This is true. There is a Dr. Seuss book called What Do People Do All Day? And my friend's summary of this book was apparently mostly drive around. (laughs) Yes. And lose their cars and get them again, then lose them again. I do like that the various combinations of bad guys always end up in that Land Rover because it's a very expensive vehicle. (laughs) <laughs> They're in a remote area. They don't have extra Land Rovers. They got to get around. The roads are rough. Yes, they have the Land Rover and the helicopter, and that's it. That's all the budget actually stretches to. <laughs> and their leaky boat. And their leaky boat. I forgot about the leaky boat. I'm right with Dalton when you said that you have no idea really who the bad guys are, because mm-hmm. I still don't, even at the end. <laughs> Yeah. Everyone except for the brigadier and um, the brother and sister, I thought. Yeah. 
I guess so, even though it seemed like the book was trying to set that one up as well. I thought they were going to turn out to be the masterminds. Oh, that would have been brilliant, wouldn't it? It would have made that ending so much more satisfying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. unfortunately not. Maybe his original ending was Esther kills him. Possibly. And he was right to run from her. It was not a fear of commitment. It was a legitimate fear of assassination. Possibly. No, there was so... Well, when she was at the Cairn, mm-hmm. yeah. of all the archaeological sites there were available in the region for her to examine, when she was there that day, I thought they were going to bring her into the plot as either one of the villains or some sort of government agent who had been keeping an eye on him or the project all along. Yeah. That's why she had been so intently interested in him. Yeah, and I thought she was going to end up like uh, Vesper from Casino Royale. Mm-hmm. That he'd end up falling for her. She turned out to be villainous. She dies. He has no feelings about it whatsoever, but that's so not Harry. So instead of her dying, he ends up marrying her. <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre. Oh, God. This is a legitimately good thing, Tony. <laughs> okay, you sure? You sure <laughs> this now? This is a backhand... I okay. like that Sarah Jane showed up. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will say that. Yes. Okay. And what did you like character. about it? And very yes. in character. Very in character. Written well. Very much feels like Sarah Jane that we know and love. There you go. That's a real compliment about the book. Mm-hmm. Much smoother at everything she does than Harry is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. As usual. I do love his relative lack of ego through most of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were talking earlier about how the word imbecile gets brought up, and I love the scene where he's talking to Teddy, and he just bluntly tells him, you can call me an imbecile, just don't call me Sellers. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, yes, there you go. He'd much rather be insulted than have his name turned into a nickname. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I get that. I, I really do. Yeah, I would much rather have somebody call me a motherfucker to my face than call me Tone. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, please, never. Or Anthony, because there are people who think they're doing me a favor by lengthening my name. It's like, that's, that's not my name. But yeah. In terms of negatives, I don't know if it holds up very well that the villains are the people who are against germ warfare and pollution created in the pursuit of germ warfare, that the good guys work for something called the Attila Program, which I assume meant they were going to sweep across Asia and Eastern Europe killing. Yes. (laughs) I would say I did not expect the bad guys to be all unqualified bad guys. I thought they were going to be a bit more noble. Yeah, or at least professional. But the only one who seems to be professional is the gigantic West Indian, mm-hmm. which is the least racist way to describe that character. So I'll give Martyr credit for that, because we have seen in Terrence Dick's books all of the big blacks that we can stand for one lifetime. And the weird thing is, the, the, the actor he has in mind is probably the same person that Terrence Dix was describing when he used that phrase. Because he's describing the guy who played Toberman in Tomb of the Cybermen and was also, oh, I'm forgetting what Pertwee story he appeared in, but, it, you know, same era. And he probably had him in mind for that ridiculously named Rudolph Rainbow. Oh, my God. I was wondering if that was some kind of reference that I didn't get. It may have been. It very well could have been. I don't know what it could have been. To me, it just sounds like one of those weird Bond-esque names, like Mayday, <laughs> you know. It, yeah. just, it it has this like sound to it that sounds like a code name mm-hmm. without it really delivering on that in any, yeah. in any way. <laughs> Or a stage name, even Mm. though, to be honest, Pussy Galore would be much more of a stage name than Rudolph Rainbow. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. And, uh, Allison, to go back to what you were saying about them only being able to afford the one Land Rover, when he sees the advertisements of the Jamaican strongman Rudolph Rainbow, he's lifting the Land Rover. So they only (laughs) have the one car. (laughs) So, yeah, this is bad guys on the cheap. It was a nice change that the American is evil instead of just stupid. 
Well, was he though? Because I'm. Well, he was a little of both. I I guess it sounded more like he was just fanatical, which isn't quite the same thing as evil. But then, oh, I don't know. Okay, so is Samantha really his daughter? And apparently, there is a sickly identical twin. Are they? They're twins, but. Only one of them's Russian? I was very confused about what the family structure was by the end. There are twins. They're both some sort of agents of earache. Maybe they're... So we've got an American with one British daughter and one Russian daughter. But they're twins. So they're theoretically the same age. I I didn't mean to laugh quite so hard at that, but my... I have new glasses, and they don't fit these earphones anymore. So when I wear earphones, I literally have an earache. And just as you said that, I had a twinge <laughs> go through my left ear, and I was like, fuck. It was the agents of earache. The agents of earache, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Have you tried applying a thick bandage? I probably should. I honestly don't know. I, I did not reread to research that further. <laughs> it did not greatly interest me, but... Um... It would have been nice to have a villainous group that we were actually interested in, but this one seems so incompetent that they... are unfocused. Yeah. Well, the fact that Harry Sullivan has been in their power three times by my count, and on one occasion he just runs out of the room and finds a car and drives it away. Mm -hmm. It's it's like, okay... He he does steal a lot of their vehicles. I don't blame them for being angry. (laughs) Yes. True, but never the Land Rover. Somehow never the Land Rover, because we need to make sure. Did he steal the Land Rover? I thought he did. Oh, I don't recall. I just don't know why they, they just, they lose all patience, you know? They stole the nerve toxin. Mm -hmm. They could have just waited for him to come up with the antidote, and then still it. Well, I thought the... The reveal was going to be that they are actually very pro-nerve toxin. They want to manufacture it for Ceausescu or something. But they seem to actually be inept activists. Yes. Yeah. But awfully murderous for activists is what I'm saying. Yes. I, I would think they would want to destroy the project, but they want to know how the antidote works and whether it works. So... They are so against chemical weapons, they want to experiment on the person who's creating the antidote to the chemical weapons to see if it works. And if mm-hmm. it doesn't, oh, well, they just killed the guy who's working on the antidote. I, I found, like I said, I found their, <laughs> yeah. I found their methods questionable yeah. relative to their objectives. I thought, it, I thought it really did think it was going to turn out that the, the, the Romanians were actually running the entire operation and it just sort of... Um, uh, trick some activists into cooperation. They seem like the Occupy Wall Street version of 80s bioterrorists. Just completely ineffectual and something of a joke. And good ideas, but such horrible execution so that even an imbecile like Harry Sullivan can somehow trip into their plans, sometimes literally, and manage to foil them somehow. I still don't know how the plans get foiled at the end. I honestly don't. Somebody fell off the Eiffel Tower, so they don't exist as an organization anymore. Yeah, and we're meant to think that it was, um, well, I guess the original plan was for Harry to fall to his death, but I don't know how that would have foiled the plans either. Because I don't, I don't think he would have fallen to his death. I think he would have done some sort of heroic self-sacrifice. Maybe. I hope or maybe so. he would have gotten squashed at the gym. Yeah. Maybe he only wrote one scene originally, and he was told, you've got to go at least 90 pages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's pulling Robert Holmes, doing just the prologue, and then saying, ah, this is too much, and giving it to Terrence Sticks. No, I did actually think that all the times he escaped were going to uh, be revealed as intentional on the part of Earache. Ah, yeah. But then by the end, I got the impression that maybe they were just that bad at locking people in rooms and keeping them there. They are that bad because he's gone home three times in the course of this book. And they know who he is because that ridiculous pseudonym is just an anagram of his name. 
so they know who he is. They could probably figure out just from recordings, because they're recording every conversation in the top secret organization where he works, they could figure out his home address. They never come find him there. Well, I thought that was his home address where he only went the one time, because I thought he'd been at the Yara Research Facility. Well, yes, but then later in the book, he goes back to his flat. Which I thought they were going to be, I thought they were going to be waiting for him there. And they aren't, because they apparently either don't know where it is or figure they can pick him up later. It, yeah. Now they locked him in a room but didn't secure the windows. They locked him in a shed that they had been improperly maintaining. I, I did actually think it was very fun, though, when he escaped the shed by figuring out he could probably make it out through the badly maintained roof, through this chain over the structure of the building and uh, some kind of ex- exposed roof pole or something. And now that he's 41, I thought the implication was he's put on a little weight. <laughs> the entire building, the chain was perfectly sturdy, but the structure of the building just couldn't take it. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's one of the lamer plot beats overall that this international organization is so bad at keeping this one guy locked in a 10 foot by 12 foot space every time they try it. But then one of those delightful moments where he's very sore and he's heavier than he used to be and he finds it very, very difficult to get away even from the rickety shed. Mm -hmm. I do have to wonder about that though, because is Samantha actually poisoned with the toxin or is she play acting there? If she's play acting, why? If it's the sister, why? Well, I thought play acting, but then I expected a more explicit explanation of what she gained by that. Yeah. Because he leaves her there writhing in, on the gravel. Yeah. So she didn't get poisoned by it, even though obviously it should have. And what would have been the point of her pretending to? Well, not necessarily, because he feels confident that throwing a wet jacket... <laughs> over this super international super weapon is going to be enough to contain it. And even after she has been exposed and he has uh, driven away without her. Right. At that point, not yet anticipating that he was going to drive into a tunnel and climb a ladder (laughs) (laughs) to jump a train. At that point, it would have made a little more sense if he had uh, put her in the vehicle. But even after he has wrapped... The vial in his wet jacket, which he believes will contain it. And she has, from outside the building, if I recall this correctly, been exposed to it through the jacket. Mm -hmm. He still, later on, thinks about how there's probably not that much danger for another 12 hours because it's wrapped in a wet jacket. (laughs) But then he also, like, as he's leaving, he sees that group of uh, people in the campers and tells them to turn back. Yes! (laughs) But then he decides, no, it's probably okay. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. I thought that there would be clarification at the end as to why Samantha would fake being infected. They have seated in the story his doubts that the virus, or it's not the virus, the pathogen, it's not a pathogen. Toxin, toxin. uh, Toxin has been released. Yeah, because there's no indication that he's afraid that he will be contagious or she will be contagious, so they'll be spreading it around. So he thinks that it's contained, but then he thinks she's dying of exposure to something that was supposedly contained. (laughs) And then later, when he realizes that she didn't look pathetic and put on dark glasses and sit in a wheelchair, but she actually went to the trouble of having a natural clone. Yes. Who was genuinely disabled in the wheelchair. He doesn't have a brainwave about why she would have done that and how Eurek benefited. Yeah. He was already escaping. He was already running away. So she didn't just, she didn't create a scenario where he thought he had escaped, but he'd actually been released. Mm-hmm. But yes. he didn't take her with him in a rescue attempt. Right. Why? Yeah. What, what did she get out of it? Yeah. I. What did Eric get out of it? I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I had to take my glasses off as soon as you said Eric again. So I'm not even <laughs> sure it's anywhere in my notes at this point. It's he a trigger word. To, <laughs> yes, he, it is. He believes he needs to save her, but he keeps forgetting that about that. Which I thought was kind of funny. Oh, yeah, that's right. Samantha's dying. Dang it. <laughs> Buy milk, save Samantha. I know I keep forgetting something. 
In my notes, I actually have the quote from that. Uh, it's at the beginning of the chapter, More Clues. All thoughts of Samantha's safety vanished from his confused mind as he began to see the case against the brigadier hardening relentlessly. And I said, yeah, fuck her, man. <laughs> Which is exactly what it seems to be his attitude. And it's in pursuit of the case against the Brigadier, which, as you pointed out, Dalton, is a red herring. And it is such yeah. a red herring that it has no impact on the plot whatsoever. Mm-mm. None. Well, w- wait, I disagree, and then I forgot why immediately. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what, what, What are you saying doesn't have impact on the plot? Uh, the Brigadier's not even involved in all this. That for some reason... They have gotten information about Unit out of the Brigadier at Shire's house, but they really haven't gone out of their way to actually use it, so it doesn't actually have any impact on the full plot. But then the plot is so difficult to understand anyway, it's hard to know whether it had any impact on the plot when you have twin daughters of the villain collapsing when they don't need to collapse and a hero leaving them behind when he probably doesn't even need to rescue them to begin with. And God only knows what else is happening. The only, the only thing I can think about with the Brigadier is that like knowing information from the Brigadier about Harry and their relationship would allow them to then make sure that Curly was at the Brigadier's place as an agent for them. So if Harry came there, he could be cut off. But Again, this is me just, like, creating a story yes. for it. Well, but the, number one is subliminally plant in the Brigadier the desire to rent that place for the summer. Exactly. Except I thought it was in his family. Yeah. Because it's been Create, established. Subliminally plant in the Brigadier a desire to be born into a family. <laughs> with that summer home across Dead Lock, which is a really terrible tourism bureau name, <laughs> from a house that was also, I think, explicitly stated as inherited. Mm-hmm. That's, that's synchronicity. That's planning. Yeah, that's synchronicity right there. I didn't think Curly was pretty entertaining uh so back to harry's masculine anxieties he has two love interests who he alternates chasing uh, very timidly and trepidatiously and being absolutely terrified of and flat out running from mm-hmm. he's got two older men who he alternately cautiously sees as allies and then fears might be betraying him. Yes. Uh, who owns, who's the American in the South? Shire. Shire mm-hmm. and the Brigadier. Mm-hmm. He thinks both of them at various times may be the bad guy or may be a like-minded person. Yeah. And then he has all kinds of amusing uh, sexual hangups, I think, related to both Randolph and Curly. Yes. And that relates to something I wanted to bring up. This is something that we brought up before, I think, on the podcast, but... According to Nicholas Courtney, Ian Martyr came out to him as bisexual. And I could just see this being Ian Martyr trying to work out some of that stuff on the page, though I don't quite see how. I thought that's what you were trying to go for there, Allison, but I wasn't... No, I was going for more of a classic hetero-male midlife crisis. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's definitely what this is. I, I, I did like the part where... Curly was so disgusted and wanted to beat him at work toll because Curly lost the fight earlier, but I thought it was going to be because of Harry's linguistic offenses. (laughs) 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 Poor fashion choices. Like, Curly, you gave him those clothes. (laughs) You can't be mad at him now. (laughs) You said look and sound American. Oh, wow. It's not his fault that he's mad at it. (laughs) He's writing a Mark Twain essay about it. Oh, Lord. I think the reason why we're so disappointed is that it's still Ian Martyr. And when Ian Martyr writes badly, he still writes better than, uh, let's say, Terrence Sticks on a Lazy Day. It's Spencer for Hire. It's great cinematography and lighting for television. It really is. It always looks terrific, except when you remember what's actually going on on the screen in front of you. And you realize nothing is happening. It's an experience. It's definitely that. Not a puzzle box. Oh, yeah. It's definitely that. 
So speaking of secret projects, my great uncle who worked on projects that when he was explicitly asked about them, finally said, I actually can't tell you about them, created something for his nieces and nephews. He referred to as a nothing box, Mm -hmm. which is a box that he wired up with a lot of lights and buzzers and buttons that didn't actually do anything. (laughs) 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 This is not a puzzle box. This is my great uncle's nothing box. I could see that. It, it, it does not have any interesting sliding panels that work intricately together to reveal compartments that hold prizes. It has lights and buttons, and it's a tremendous amount of fun. Mm-hmm. If only for the bad OCR, because, my God, I love it when we get lines like, otherwise the castle looked inserted. Yes, I have that <laughs> in the screen in front of me, that page. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's so many of them. May I read further? Yes, of course. Otherwise, the castle looked inserted. And that one was actually kind of amazing that it rhymed with instead of looked like the right word. But then there was just a, an amazing sequence. He watched for a while and then drove up the binding track <laughs> and through the gateless archway into the R Alley yard. And that one, I actually had no idea what the R Alley was supposed to be. I, <laughs> I think, think it was a alley. winding track. Okay. Which was surrounded on three sides by castle buildings on the fourth side by an outer wall. He R irked near the arch. <laughs> I think he parked. Yes. And then I was reading further and oh, the weather had righted. R R I G H T. Or rightened. R R I G H. Yes. P-E-N-E-D, and the warm sunny day gave him confidence. Okay, but anyway, so later on, there was a word I didn't know that I thought I would have no hope of figuring out because I thought it was just an OCR, and I couldn't guess what it should be. Mm-hmm. Plimsold. Tread. Yes. But now I know what a plimsoll is. Yes. But I assumed it was OCR. Uh, mistake. But no, no. OCR is responsible for lines like, they're probably coking for me this very minute. Yes. I oh love that one, though. Like, visualize them doing lines yes. in preparation to go drive around trying to bump up Harry. <laughs> Let's get coked up and hot Harry. Now, listeners, just to remind you, we are reading PDF versions of these that have been, you know, (laughs) optically recognized text. And this one probably has the most errors to come out of OCR that I have ever seen with one of these books. So none of this is Ian Marger's fault. No. But it doesn't help. (laughs) It really doesn't help. In relation to the coking, it, it was the 80s, so... <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. It it would have fit right in. It would have been inserted just like the castle. Yes. Oh, God. I do want to bring up a couple things that I learned from this book that I had never known before because I had to go and do research on them to find out exactly what the hell was being talked about. And one of them is this business with the phone. He goes to a place that has a phone box that is so old that it has a button A and button B phone. And I was like, wait a minute, what? I've never heard of this. What on earth is a button A, button B phone? It is unique to the UK, as far as I can tell. What you did, you had two buttons, an A button, a B button. You push the A button, you put your money in the payphone, you dial your number, And if the other party picked up, you were connected and the money drops. In fact, uh, U.S. phone booths used to do something similar. But if they didn't answer, you hung up and you hit the B button to get your money back. So the idea being you should only pay for a call if you actually talk to the other person. But by 1959, they had changed this over to a system whereby you put the money in only when the call was answered on the other end, which still sounds onerous in its own way. And apparently kids and some adults would just go by call boxes and hit the B button on the off chance that someone hadn't collected their refund. I do remember when you walk by a payphone, you just always check the coin return. Yes, And what some would do is stuff something up the B button slot to keep the coins from falling and then come back and pull it out so that the coins would come dropping out later. (laughs) The predecessor of the credit card skimmer. Yes. I I remember being able to call the operator and say, operator, my call didn't go through. Can you send a signal through to drop my quarterback? And it almost always worked. 
So I would get quarters if I needed them. But yeah, I never knew that something like that existed. <laughs> the master criminal. Yeah, I know. You I could know. have imprisoned Harry. I could <laughs> have. More effectively. <laughs> and speaking of his prison time, Sarah Jane says something else that I had to look up. Oh, I, I, I know what you're going. Yeah. Yeah. You had the same response to it, didn't you? <laughs> Sloan Rangers. I had no idea if that was a reference that I did fail to understand or an OCR. Because at that point I had I, I actually learned all kinds of new words. It's a very point. specific pop culture reference from the eighties. Sloan Rangers are young people from upper and middle class backgrounds still sort of a stereotype in the 1980s in the u.s in that same time period we would have referred to them as preppies mm. uh, preppies is exactly as soon as i saw that in the wikipedia article for sloan rangers because believe it or not there's a wikipedia article on this <laughs> then yes i knew exactly what they were talking about anyway <laughs> no the the thing that sarah tells him that i thought you were going to mention was when she tells him to try to keep his pecker up <laughs> Oh my! <laughs> like there, there's got to be an alternate. It has a meaning. totally different meaning in America. Yeah, it it's not as dirty as it sounds. It's talking about a bird keeping its head up. Yeah. Yes. And yet it's after the scene. Well, I just might have to do a dramatic reading of this. Next moment, Harry was flying through the air. He hit the water with a terrific splash, spread eagled in his clothes like a corpse. Spluttering and choking, he came to the surface and struck out for the opposite end of the pool with a strong and stylish crawl, while Samantha's silvery laughter m mocked his struggle against the drag of his sodden garments. As he reached the other end and prepared to haul himself out, he was confronted by a pair of massive legs dripping with water. Shaking the water out of his eyes, he squinted upwards at the colossal, glistening torso of Rudolph Rainbow towering above him. <laughs> Harry gasped at the awesome figure standing in the tiling. Now, I'll be generally more Jungian than Freudian in my analysis of things, but <laughs> what, a, what, what a feast that yeah. paragraph is. We've got yeah. sex, death, more... <laughs> yeah. All kinds of fluids, stylish crawls. Bisexual authors unpacking their sexuality on the page, yeah. <laughs> I also learned that puka means authentic. I never knew that before. I never even heard the term before. But yeah, apparently. Anything else we want to bring up about this, good or bad? Did he actually accidentally cure migraines and infertility? I don't think we'll get back to it later on. We don't, but it looks like he did. By overdosing one of his patients. <laughs> By injecting that woman and impregnating her, much to her delight. Yeah, well, he didn't and, impregnate her. She but... didn't have a headache tonight, apparently. Right. <laughs> Only Harry Sullivan would respond to a woman telling him that she's pregnant with, well done, old thing. Yes. I bet he says that after sex as well, because, yeah, I could just see him doing this. The things that his, he says, his customary interjections, he says them a lot. Yes. My <laughs> giddy aunt, yes. My giddy aunt. <laughs> And there was another one. Good Lord, the Bounders have even been through my tea caddy. Mm. <laughs> I, I was annoyed at first at both of his love interests, who he's afraid of, Shriek. But then we had Gold Shriek later on as well, yes. so I was okay with it. Yeah, he's an equal opportunity Shrieker. <laughs> Lots of people Shriek. I Shrieked when I got to that ending. Because, what the hell? At the end, the epilogue, everyone gets away, nothing gets answered. And we get that ending. Stupid. <laughs> yes. And here's the thing. For years, I had labored under the delusion that Ian Martyr was ill in the last year of his life. And that would have explained the eccentricities of his last few books, including what I'd heard about this one. And it's not. This is Ian Martyr Corpus Mentis. He knows what he's doing. He's doing this deliberately. Uh, doing what deliberately? He's doing what he does in this book deliberately. Whatever it is that he's doing in this book, he's doing it <laughs> deliberately. And I still have no idea what the fuck it is, because I don't get what's going on in this book. I have read, what, 146 pages of Bond pastiche, but it's all pastiche. It's all stuff stuck together, and I don't know what the connective tissue is made out of. It's his midlife crisis book. It really but is. But he's self-aware about it and having a good time with it. Is that what's going on? Because if that's the case, it's brilliant. All his <clears throat> midlife neuroses on the page, but 
Well, I keep talking about how delightful I find his descriptions of his aches and pains that are the inevitable and natural consequences of his various adventures. Mm -hmm. I was talking about how he says that he realizes that, I think of this as if Harry's writing the book and it's autobiographical. I realize it's not exactly, but there, there is a bit of that element here. With Marta writing a character that he not only has played, but was a character that he is the only one who, who has played, mm -hmm. but says that he that Harry did not think about where he was going to stash the car when he was going to spend the night in the caves. There are a lot of little clincher details like that that make me wonder if he almost did a sort of a, sort of a walkthrough trip hmm. where he went to locations that were his inspiration and sort of walked through how he thought the plot might go. Oh, he probably did. Driving around a road where he thought about right, how would a car chase play out here? If our hero needed to ditch a car and catch a train, where would be a place you would do that? How would you do it? I thought he actually thought through many of the individual sort of physical components of the scenes very well, which is why I found it so baffling that the overall story made so little sense. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just kind of so stumped. I'm so stuck in my stumpedness that I will accept anything you say at this point. <laughs> he wanted Harry Sullivan dead. Why on earth didn't Rudolph Randolph just kill him in a quiet corner and have done with it? Yes. And I don't think we entirely got an answer to that because for someone so murderous and so physically powerful, Rudolph Rainbow was terrible at killing Harry Sullivan. Yes. <laughs> He's had ample opportunity to improve killing Harry Sullivan. <laughs> he just never gets any better. Oh, who would have your Dr. Shire? I've had quite enough of this hanky-panky. <laughs> another one that's have an alternative slang meaning. You know, that sounds like a very good line on which to end this discussion. <laughs> because I know I've had enough of this hanky-panky. Shall we go to Goodreads, everyone? <laughs> just one last thing uh, yes. on, on that note. Rudolph Rainbow was just hired to be the pool boy. <laughs> <laughs> He was yes. just Alexander's eye candy, and <laughs> somehow got roped into. <laughs> well, if that's the case, wasn't it a good thing he pushed Harry in the pool so that Harry's clothes would be wet, so that when that ampoule got broken, he would have a wet jacket to wrap around it in order mm -hmm. to stifle it, so that Samantha would then have to fake dying from it i uh. samantha pushed him in the pool she just happened to already have been out skinny dipping oh with randolph see, earlier I thought, I thought outside her dad's office window oh like you do bring all your lovers skinny dipping she's always quite secluded like yeah here at your father's house well then i have nothing <laughs> I so really, good reads yeah so good reads as we always do let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings by the way if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it which I do about this one simply read the book write a review or comment in our goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves you may just get your review read out loud here the average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.46. So it's no better than most target novelizations, but it's no worse either. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three stars and says the PDF version I read seemed to be full of OCR transcription errors, which were more than a little distracting. Well, that's part of the joy, isn't it? Maybe that distraction caused me to miss the explanation of the Brigadier's involvement in the plot, as apparently overheard by Lori L. Varnish. Yes, that anagram graded after a while, but I wouldn't have minded that so much if such a huge chunk of the book near the end hadn't been missing. The missing part might have been addressed by a sequel, which Martyr had apparently planned, but he sadly died before he could write it. I was a little uneasy about Rudolph Rainbow. It's not that he was black and a bad guy. Why shouldn't he be? It was completely incidental. And besides, all his fellow crooks were white. He did look a bit like a stereotype, though, in the vein of Toberman from Tomb of the Cybermen or Tony the Strongman, Terror of the Autons. That was the other one. Thank you. Despite those problems, I enjoyed reading this book. I would have read the sequel. I half agree with you there. Rosa 
also gives it three stars and says better than I thought it would be, but still a bit too meandering and divorced from the source material to be fulfilling. While I wasn't surprised we never saw any sign of the Doctor in this, as they aren't present in any of the three companion adventures novels, I was hoping for at least a few more mental references to the show's title character and Harry's thoughts. Granted, considering this whole adventure happens because Harry imbecilically tries to prove he's not an imbecile several times and always exacerbates an already troubling problem, and that's because the Doctor called him an imbecile in Revenge of the Cybermen. Harry Sullivan is an imbecile! So the Doctor has a lot of influence in the story despite not being present. I will say I enjoyed that immensely. On the show content side of things, we do get appearances from Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart and Sarah Jane Smith. Something I love about these connections is that Sarah Jane's and Harry's friendship is written wonderfully, and because this is authored by the actor who played Harry, the fondness that Ian Martyr himself had for the characters involved just leaps off the page. However, and this is all caps, however, I cannot forgive Harry for thinking for almost the entire book that the Brigadier, OUR Brigadier, also all caps, was involved with terrorists and was a traitor to British interests. Did he make harsh calls against aliens in the show? And could he be gun happy? Of course. So much so that he and the Doctor didn't always get along. But the Brigadier would never, in a million years, all caps, go against the British government, and the fact that the idea even crossed Harry's mind, much less than he assumed it for the entire book, is absolute sacrilege and proof that Harry really lost a lot of brain cells due to oxygen deprivation during that opening gym scene. Fair enough. <laughs> and that's where another negative for this book comes in. I did not understand what happened in that end scene at the Eiffel Tower at all. I mean, I get that the man who was attacking Harry fell down and is the body that the police are talking about at the end. I got that far, but how did Harry himself get down? Did he just cling to the metal of the Eiffel Tower underneath the platform until morning? Did he secretly have a parachute under his suit? Were the other men and women involved in the terrorist organization arrested at the Eiffel Tower, or are we just given to assume they're out there somewhere? It's never explained, and no details are given, and I'm just dot 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 a bit flummoxed. The causality of this whole adventure just absolutely makes no sense, but what the hey, I had fun. And finally, Daniel Kukwa gives it four stars and says... There is almost too much plot and action crammed into the target standard word count, but there is no denying that this is pre-New Adventures, the best original Hooniverse fiction written up to that point. Ooh. Nobody knows Harry Sullivan better than the man who played him, that's true. And Ian Martyr takes the Doctor's former companion on a James Bond ride that is surprisingly intense. It's a great pity that the intended sequel never materialized. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what did you give this? <laughs> I, I'll give this one a 2.5. And this whole time I've been trying to imagine what a mashup of Yakety Sacks and the James Bond theme would sound like. <laughs> because that's what it feels like to me. It feels very stupid, silly, enjoyable, but a little too serious? Or trying to be too serious? Yeah, like we said earlier, it's not written poorly. Like, the writing is is on his level, but just it, the story itself, I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. And so that's why I'm giving it a 2.5. I think maybe some other people, they, they like it. Allison seemed to really enjoy it, but to me, it just seemed, seemed like, eh, no, next. Okay, and Allison? Uh, Allison also loves the movie Blue Monday. Ah. which has a love scene wherein Sean Bean and Melody Griffith are trying to consummate their relationship after uh, he was beaten up by the side of the road the night before. And it just ends up with him saying, ow, oh, that hurts. <laughs> Be gentle. <laughs> you know, because Tommy Lee Jones had him beaten up because of a plot, plot to take over a jazz club. Anyway, very similar love for this year. Wherein, uh, perhaps I'm relating to the age here, and one of the 
more amusing clincher detail scenes is Harry looks in the mirror. It's horribly shocked at how he looks uh, after his adventures, and he absolutely cannot manage to clean himself up. So I actually enjoyed this one a lot. The plot makes no sense, but I think the the combination of the poignancy of the content, which did remind me in some ways of Scratch Man, even though it's a completely different tone, I suppose I love these contemplations of mortality and sort of looking back from a few years later. And we had a very similar scenario there where we have sort of an autobiographical novel where the actor who portrayed the character is looking back years later mm-hmm. uh, from the perspective of that character. I enjoyed those elements enough and I did not realize when I was reading this that Harry, who is my age-ish in the story, was the same age as Martyr and that he wrote this right before he passed. I I feel like that covers up all of the nonsense. Uh, We also had one more guest star of a sort in here. All the special air services guys know who Davros is. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't figure that out. It seemed like fan service. It felt like it was thrown in just to say, you know Davros? It's like, why would you? Oh, another thing I forgot. I did actually like that the Brigadier was exonerated by having been locked in the cellar, apparently, much of the last part of the book. I did wonder (laughs) how long he was there. (laughs) Threw him a blanket. (laughs) You know, I'm going to go with 3.25. It's a meaningless number, but Dalton's uh, absolutely right in all of the criticisms, and somehow it didn't bother me at all. Hmm. 3.25. Okay. And as for me, again... I can't get around the fact that it is Ian Martyr's last book, and we have mostly loved Ian Martyr on this show, except when we haven't. This is one of those times when I don't. But not him and not his writing, just this plot. I don't know what the hell's going on. I honestly don't. Dalton, I think you're absolutely right. I think on YouTube... I will be able to find a mashup of the James Bond theme <laughs> and the Agony Sacks, and I'll put it over the end credits for this if I find it. So be listening for that, listeners. But, yeah, it doesn't make any damn sense. He does tell us about three different times he feels like he's been beaten in the head with wet sandbags. I mean, yes, explains the plot. Yeah, there is that, but it's still Harry Sullivan. It's still recognizably Harry Sullivan. It is very much still the same Harry Sullivan we got in his novelization of Arkham Space and the novelization of Sontaran Experiment. And it's the same Harry Sullivan we got in Tom Baker's book Scratch Man. It's him. There's no fucking up the character. The world around the character, however, can get totally fucked up. And that appears what has happened, because... I have no idea what's going on with Harry in this book. The trouble with Harry, I just don't know. So, three stars. Straight down the middle for me. So, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we take up the Peter Davison era once again as we start his final season as the Doctor with the novelization of Warriors of the Deep, when we'll be joined once again by our friend Jim Sangster. Before that, we'll have a special Chicago TARDIS-based episode, the details of which are still being worked out. We may actually know by the time this goes out, and if we do, I will record some sort of bumper at the beginning and let you know. So, as a certain dead producer of the show is fond of saying, stay tuned. Earache is going to walk us into a room. <laughs> oh, and there's that <laughs> to record. Again. There's that twinge again. Good God. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.